Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you want to know how to set up and use a shooting board for precisely sizing stock? Do you struggle knowing when to stop and sharpen your chisels and hand saws? Is a hand tool only shop not for you? but you wonder what power tools would be most useful in a mostly hand tool shop? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hi everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques for May 9th, 2017. Glad you could join me today for the third episode of the show. Spring has certainly sprung here in the Appalachians. We are uh, getting lots of rain lately. The river has actually flooded some of its banks and is at the highest that I've seen it since we moved here a couple of years ago. Made it hard to get some of the farm chores done because everything's been so wet. You know, it seems like every time I try to get out and mow the grass, it either rains or the uh, grass and ground are so wet from previous rains that I can't mow it. And, you know, normally I don't mind much when I can't mow because it's a, one of those chores that I just really hate doing, but... With the warm temperatures and the wet weather we've had for the past few weeks, the grass has gotten just so high that two of my dogs can't even see over it. So, uh, like it or not, it's just one of those things that, you know, got to get done even though I don't want to do it. But, uh, of course, to add insult to injury, when I did finally get a long enough break in the weather that I could get some of the mowing done, the front linkage on the mower deck snapped in two. I have no idea how something like that happens, but of course it made the mower unusable until I could get the replacement parts. So ended up having to repair equipment in order to do a job that I really didn't want to do in the first place. So kind of ironic, but such is life on the homestead, I suppose. But we're here to talk about woodworking, not farm chores. So let's get into the woodworking. Uh, the last couple of weeks, I have continued working on the sliding lid candle box for the class that I'm going to be teaching in July. And it's more or less done. I just need to add a little bit of finish when I decide what that's going to be. Um, considering just using a beeswax finish worked in with the polissois that I got from Don Williams a couple of years ago. Uh, I've experimented with the, the technique a bit, but mostly just on scraps up to this point. So I really haven't used it on a full-blown project yet. And I think this could be a really good project to use the technique on since it's small and pretty much all flat surfaces. So... Uh, you know, check out the blog for that because I'll be sure to uh, post that on the blog when I get around to doing that. I had also been working on making a new coffin smoother, which is a bit ironic, I supposed. I uh, I talked about in episode one about how I had sold most of my wooden planes because of movement issues in my new shop, and here I decided to go and make a brand new one. Um, you know, I already had the iron though from some old planes and. The beach was given to me by a friend about six or seven years ago and uh, has been air drying ever since. So anyhow, I, I started making that smooth plane with every intention of blogging about the construction process and I had completed the layout for the, the bed and the throat. And but unfortunately, as I started chopping the mortise in the top of the plane blank, I ran into some issues. Uh, once I got down a little ways below the surface, I ran into a bunch of checking running through the middle of the blank, which made the blank more or less useless. So the uh, plain blank went into the fire pit and iron set went back into the cabinet into storage. So maybe I'll try again someday, but I got enough projects to work on right now. So that's what I've been working on the last couple of weeks. So a couple of uh, folks offered some support for the show, 
in the form of donations. Uh, thanks to Krister K. and Lawrence Polinski for signing up to support the show over at Patreon. Uh, if you want to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And there you can sign up to pledge a dollar a month, $3 a month, or $5 a month. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. The uh, first patron extra show was actually posted on April 30th, but if you sign up to become a patron at $3 a month or more, you'll get access to that show as well as future patron extra shows for as long as you remain a patron. So I don't have any feedback to share with you this week. Uh, if you would like to share your feedback on the show or if you have something to add to questions that I've answered in previous shows, or if you don't agree with my answers and just want to share your own opinion, uh, please feel free to send in your feedback. You can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. You can send it in an email or use contact form on the website. Uh, another way you can also send in a voicemail if you don't want to call the voicemail number is to just record a voice memo on your phone, tablet, or computer. And then you can just email me that recorded MP3 file. That's a great option if you have feedback or question, but you're not able to call or email right away. You can just go ahead and record your feedback or question on your device and then email it later when you got time. So I can then play that on the show just like a regular voicemail. And actually the uh, audio quality will probably be better than leaving a, a voicemail over the phone anyway. So just one more option for you to uh, call and leave feedback or question for the show. So let's get into our mailbox for this week. Our first question comes from Warren Snow. And uh, I encourage you to uh, go and check out Warren's website at snowwoodworks.com. I went over there to, to take a peek at it. And uh, Warren does some, some pretty amazing marketry work, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Uh, you know, he's he's done uh, quite a few marketry projects, and he's got a, a waving Union Jack flag over there that's just really cool. I uh, really like that. So nice work, Warren, and thanks for uh, sharing your work with us. Uh, so anyway, Warren says, Hi, Bob. I started listening to your podcast today, and I love it. You're quite good at explaining concepts clearly and concisely. Well, thank you, Warren. I, uh, I appreciate that feedback. A suggestion that would be helpful to me for a future show is the setup and use of shooting boards to fine-tune and size parts for a precise fit. Also, what should I look for in planes that are used on shooting boards? So, you mentioned um, sizing parts for a precise fit. So, I'm going to assume you're you're really referring to 90-degree shooting boards here. But, um, you know, there are lots of different shooting boards that you can build for lots of different tasks. We you know whether it's miters, um, donkey's ear type shooting boards for wide miters or moldings, um, you know, miter jacks, and, and there's a lot of different styles of shooting boards uh, that are possible. But we're just going to talk about the 90 degree shooting board because that's mostly what what most people are going to be interested in in using. So, you know, for years I had just used some pretty basic shooting boards. Um, made of plywood, made of solid pine, you know, kind of whatever scraps I had laying around. Um, and I just, you know, would, would make a ramp out of one piece. Uh, not so much a ramp, I guess you would call it the shoot. I've never made a ramp shooting board. All my shooting boards are always, um, flat, but you're essentially going to take two pieces, um, whether it's plywood or, 
solid wood or whatever you're going to use. One piece should be slightly wider, about two or three inches wider than the other piece. And you're going to put the narrower piece on the top. You want to make sure that the edge of that narrow board is perfectly straight, whether it's plywood, whether it's solid wood, makes no difference. But that edge is going to be what your fence is referenced off of and what your plane is going to ride against. So that needs to be dead straight. And you're going to attach that piece to the top of the lower piece, uh, lining up the left side if you're um, if you're right-handed, and if you're left-handed, you would line up you know the the right side, the right edges, um, and that's going to create a chute on the right-hand side that your plane will ride in, um, and then that ledge that the plane will ride against, and it's up to you how you want to handle the fence. Now, in the past, I have really just glue the fence in place. Um, you know, you take your tri-square or your combination square and you line that fence up. You can put a couple, tack a couple brads in it to hold it in place, to hold the glue. And I've glued my fences in place, whether it was um, solid wood or plywood, and I've really never had a problem. Um, recently, I did build a new shooting board um, and I did write a blog post about that and I'll put the, the link for that in the show notes. And I did make an adjustable fence. Um, I don't have, I haven't used it enough to to be able to say whether or not that adjustable fence is really going to make a difference. Um, but, you know, I will follow up with that after I've used it for some time. Um, you know, but essentially, really, you just want to make sure that that fence is dead square to the straight edge of the top board. And then, you know, your plane is going to ride in that chute. Um, and then, you, you know, you can put a, a cleat along the front and bottom edge that will butt up against the front of your workbench and that will keep the shooting board from moving. Um, and you can also use that cleat to actually clamp the shooting board into your bench vise um, and that will stabilize it even more. But essentially, you know, that's it. It's a really simple appliance. Um, it doesn't have to be fancy. You can make it fancy if you really want to. You know, like I said, I made my most recent one a little bit more fancy by giving it sort of a, an adjustable fence, but um, you know, that's really not necessary at all. Uh, in the past, I've just glued the fence down, um, you know, tacked it in place to hold the glue, or you can screw it from the backside, um, you know, to hold it in place. But, um, you know, if it goes, if the fence goes out of square and you just glued it in place, you can always, you know, shim it with a little bit of uh, like blue painter's tape or something like that so that you can square it back up or you can hit it with a shoulder plane to re-square it. But, um, you know, it's a real fairly simple appliance. So you just want to make sure that that fence is 90 degrees to the chute and you'll be good to go. So in terms of planes for the shooting board, uh, this is really subjective and really comes down to personal preference. Uh, you know, that there's one camp that says, you know, low angle, low planes with low bed angles, low, low effective cutting angles are going to be the best for a shooting board. I won't argue that a low cutting angle will be slightly easier to push through the cut. Um, but really in my experience, you know, the best plane that I have laying around for, uh, for the use in the shooting board is going to be the sharpest one that I have, you know, the one that I just recently sharpened. I've really found not a lot of difference, um, in use in shooting boards between just about any plane, um, that I've had. I've used smoothing planes. I've used block planes. I've used, uh, standard angle, low angle, high angle, you know, just about anything. Um, as long as the blade is sharp and by sharp, I mean, freshly sharpened, you know, you want that blade as sharp as you can get it 
for use in a shooting board and that's going to give you the best results. Um, I've used metal planes. I've used wooden planes. It, it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Um, you know, one thing that you will hear touted is that the sides of the plane need to be dead square to the sole of the plane in order to use it in a shooting board. Um, you know, maybe there's some merit to this, but I found it's really not necessary for the sides to be perfectly square to the sole. Um, you know, every plane has a bit of lateral adjustment on the blade. And if your sides of your plane are slightly out of square with the sole of the plane, you can make up for that by using the lateral adjuster to adjust the position of the iron so that the iron is cutting square, even though the sides aren't square to the sole of the plane. So if the plane that you're going to use isn't perfectly, you know, doesn't have perfectly square sides and sole, I wouldn't worry about it too much as long as they're close and, and not grossly out of square. Um, you know, it certainly makes it a little bit easier to set up the plane for shooting if the side is square to the sole, because then you can just sight down the uh, the sole and make sure that you've got even projection of the blade all the way across. But again, it's not, you know, it's not necessary. You can adjust for an out of square plane body by using that lateral adjuster to make sure that the iron is cutting square, even if the, uh, if the body is not perfectly square. So I wouldn't worry too much about, you know, a specialized plane for a shooting board. I would just use whatever you've got and just make sure the blade is sharp and you shouldn't have any problems whatsoever. So the next question comes from Thomas and Thomas wants to know what are some good primary and secondary woods to use for with hand tools. Now I'll preface this by saying you can use any wood you want with hand tools. Um, you know, there, there's really no limit to what hand tools can do. I've used my hand tools to work with ebony, gaboon ebony, which is, you know, pretty much the hardest wood in the world. Um, there are plenty of, of folks who live in Australia who work some incredibly hard woods. You know, a lot of the local Australian woods are incredibly hard woods and they work with them just fine with hand tools. So you can work with any woods that you want to work with, with hand tools. What you're going to find is that you just may need to change your technique slightly. You may need to take lighter cuts. You may need to sharpen more often, depending on what type of wood. Now, in terms of what woods are ideal for working with hand tools, to me, that's a slightly different question. What I like to do is to look at the types of woods that were used historically before the Industrial Revolution um, to kind of get a feel for what types of woods would be most friendly for someone using hand tools. Um, and when I say friendly, I mean something that's not going to um, require as much effort. That's going to allow you to get your work done efficiently um, and not, you know, not take forever to do. Um, I wrote a couple blog posts about, you know, hand tool efficiency. Um, and I recently did one on, on material selection of hand tool efficiency and material selection. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But in essence, what I would be looking for, what I look for in a, in a good hand tool wood is something that um, is, has some structure. So, you know, I, I don't like super, super soft woods for primary woods if I don't have to use them um, because mostly just because they tend to, to dent um, and, and get damaged 
a lot of times during the construction process. So I do love working with white pine, but it's one of those woods that you kind of have a love-hate relationship with, right? It requires real sharp tools to work with because it tends to, to chip and break out if it if you're not using really sharp tools because it's so soft. Um, it won't always cut cleanly. Um, and it'll, you know, it can dent easily. And in the middle of your project, you know, you can find that you've got some dents and some scratches in it that weren't there before. So, um, because it's just so soft, but at the same time, it is really, really nice to work with. Um, so, you know, it's one of those love hate relationships with, with white pine. Um, personally, I look for woods that are, you know, anywhere from white pine up to about the hardness of say, you know, like American black cherry. That that's about the hardest that I really enjoy working. When you start to get into woods that are harder than cherry, um, you know, you're starting to look at woods like hard maple, red and white oak. Um, and you know, there was a lot of furniture built with those woods one after the industrial revolution. But when we go back and we look at historical furniture and historical woodwork, we'll find that most of the furniture and the millwork and, you know, things that were done with wood before the Industrial Revolution were typically using woods that were much more friendly to work with than things like oak and maple. Um, you can go back to the 16th century, you know, and, and look at some of the work like what Peter Follensby does. Um, and they used a lot of oak during that period, but they used that wood while it was still green. Um, and there's a huge, huge difference between working with green oak, especially when it's riven right out of the log, and working with oak that has been kiln-dried. Um, to me, oak is one of the woods, you know, kiln-dried oak um, is probably one of the last woods that I would choose to work with. It's just a a bear. Um, it, it's, it's really hard to plane. It saws nicely. Um, but in terms of chiseling, if you're going to cut dovetails, um, in terms of planing, it's just one of those really ornery woods to work with when it's been kiln dried. Um, it is a pleasure to work with green, but that's a whole different type of woodworking that most of the, most people aren't considering when, when we're looking at, you know, what woods are we going to use with hand tools? So, um, I would say woods like walnut, poplar, cherry, uh, mahogany, these are all wonderful woods to work with hand tools. And if, especially if you're just starting out with hand tools, I would say try and stick with woods in those hardness ranges. Something like walnut is really nice. Mahogany, if I could work with mahogany, you know, the rest of my life, um, you know, that would be the one wood. If I could only choose one wood to work with the rest of my life, it would be mahogany. It's just a, a beautiful wood to work with, with hand tools. So, um, you know, but I try to stick with, you know, nothing harder than cherry. Um, if I do have to go harder than cherry, if I've got to go with hard maple or oak for something, um, you know, I, I try to avoid it, but if I have to, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just one of those things that I have to, to tell myself, well, it's going to take me longer to work with it and it's going to require lighter cuts. Um, and it's going to require, you know, sharp tools and, you know, it's just going to frustrate me a little bit. So stick to woods that are, you know, cherry and let a little, you know, make cherry your most dense and you'll be looking at things like poplar, walnut, mahogany, cherry, things in that fa in those families. And, uh, I think you'll, I think you'll be happy with those. So our next question comes from William. William says, I wonder about knowing when to stop and sharpen a chisel or saw. 
Of the two, knowing when the saw needs sharpening is more difficult for me. I realize that it's a feel thing and not easily taught or demonstrated, but the issue befuddles me. So, William, this is one of those questions that I almost try to avoid. Um, and and <laughs> to be honest with you, I almost considered, you know, not including it in the show. But um, I don't think that's fair. You know, when when people uh, go to the, the trouble to send me their questions, I think I should at least address them. So, um but this is one of those questions that, like you said, it really comes down to a feel thing and an experience thing. Um, so the pointers that I can give you, the tips that I can give you about, you know, when you should stop and sharpen. So in terms of planes and chisels, it's usually a little bit more easier to identify that because most of the time that plane or that chisel is going to dull. You're, you're using them a lot more frequently, right? So... The plane is going to maybe require a little bit more effort to push. Um, maybe it's the shavings are going to be a little bit more broken and they're not going to be as consistent. Uh, maybe you're finding that you have to deepen the the cut because the plane starts to not take shavings when they're real, you know, when it's set for a really thin cut. That's when you may want to think about stopping and sharpening. Um, with chisels, it you know, it can be a little bit more of a challenge. Um, if you're working wood, something soft like um, like pine or like poplar, what you're going to find is that the wood will start to crush more uh, and not cut as cleanly, and that's a, a good indication that it's time to stop and sharpen that chisel. Uh, if you're working harder woods, the, the crushing's not going to be as evident because those woods are more resistant to crushing uh, to begin with. So they're going to cut fairly clean with a, a chisel that's slightly uh, slightly dull. But what you might find with those harder woods is that while they may still cut clean, it takes more effort. Um, if you've, if the chisel feels, you know, if you're pairing with it and it feels like it's really taking a lot of effort or too much effort, it probably means you need to stop and sharpen that chisel because you're getting yourself into a dangerous situation where you're, you're forcing the chisel uh, more than you should be. If you're chopping you know, are you starting to feel like you need to hit the chisel harder to cut? Um, then maybe it's time to stop and sharpen that chisel. Uh, I tend to keep uh, a strop close by and, uh, and you know, give the chisel a, a couple passes on the strop before it gets to that point. And it, I find that that helps keep the edge a little bit longer. And I may not have to go back to the stones as frequently by doing that. But, um, you know, it really comes down mostly to effort. Saws are a little bit more difficult because what... I find is that we don't pay one, we don't pay attention to them quite as much, but also we're not using them um, for as long periods of time as we might be using a hand plane or a, a chisel. So you might make a couple cuts with that saw and put it away and not use it for another week or two. Um, and then you'll use it again for a couple of cuts and then put it away and not use it for, you know, maybe another month. So, while you're with, but with the planes and the chisels, you're kind, you're almost using them every time you're in the shop. So, um, the saws can be a little bit different, different. What I find with my own saws though, is that really I'm only sharpening them. Most of them about no more than twice a year. Um, and even that might be, you know, only when I'm really using, doing a lot of work and using the saws a, a lot. Um, sometimes I, I, end up just sharpening once a year. And I think what you'll find is that your saws don't tend to dull as quickly as your chisels do and your, and your plane irons. So, um, 
you know, if you were to have your saws sharpened once a year or, or sharpen them yourself once a year, if you sharpen them yourself, I think for most people that would probably be enough. Um, you know, I do all my work with hand saws and I'm only really sharpening my saws maybe twice a year. Um, unless I'm really using it a lot for, um, you know, some very abrasive wood or something with a lot of silica in it, or I'm just doing an awful lot of sawing, then I may stop and sharpen them a little bit more often. But for the most part, you know, I'm only sharpening my saws a few times a year. Um, and that's with some pretty regular use. So I think for most people, if you sent your saws out for sharpening or sharpened them yourself once a year, I think you're probably, um, you'll probably be in a good situation and you won't be dealing with dull saws. So our last question comes from Joshua Sonzen. Um, and Joshua says, Hi Bob, another beginning hand tool woodworker here, about to embark on the traditional first project, the workbench. I saw in your blog that the only thing you'd have done differently with your English style bench is to use eight quarter material. Is that due to the problems you've had with holdfasts or some other reason? I searched, but I couldn't find any more on this. I wonder if slightly thinner holdfasts would work better with a one and a half inch thick top. I've seen holdfasts made with half inch rod for five eighth inch dog holes. What do you think? So for the most part, yeah, I would use eight quarter material and that is because of holdfasts. Um, most commercial holdfasts won't work in anything that is much thicker, much thinner than uh, inch in it, than two inches. When you start to get below two inches, holdfasts kind of have some trouble holding. Um, in terms of using thinner holdfasts, I'm not sure where you found your half inch holdfasts. I would think you would have had to had them made by a blacksmith, um, but I also wouldn't go putting a half inch holdfast in a five eighth inch dog hole. Um, you kind of need that hole for your holdfasts to be really about the same size as the shaft diameter. You don't want to go with a, a hole an eighth of an inch difference. If, if if you went with a hole that's an eighth of an inch bigger than the shaft of your holdfast, what you're going to find is that that holdfast is actually going to have trouble holding anyway, because um, you know there's just too much play in the hole. Um, you the the holdfast holds by flexing, not by getting cocked in the hole. Um, you know, there is some of that going on, but it's more because of the flex in the holdfast itself, which is why the old um, cast iron holdfasts used to crack a lot um, because they didn't have a lot of flex to them. The new ductile iron ones work well because they have some flex. Um, blacksmith made holdfasts work well because the steel that they're using to make them with has some flex to them. Um, so you really want the, the holdfast itself to provide the holding power and not, you know, making it so that the, um, the hole is that much wider than the holdfast, because that's just going to provide for a sloppy fit and you're going to, you're going to be frustrated with it. So, um, but yeah, I haven't seen half inch holdfast, but you know, I would just really try to stick with eight quarter material. If you can, uh, try not to go thicker, thinner than two inches. If you can avoid it, um, you can still use inch and a half thick material for your top if you want to laminate it. So you can take some three quarter inch material and glue it to the backside um, or just, you know, glue two pieces of inch and a half stock together to make a three inch top. Um, you know, if you're trying to save some money because even two pieces of, you know, like two by 12 still probably going to be a little bit less expensive than 
you know, going out to a lumberyard and buying some eight quarter hardwood or something like that. Um, so, you know, even if you got a couple pieces of two by 12 and milled them flat and face glued them together to make three inch top, um, you know, that would work better. Um, so yeah, I would definitely try and stay with at least two inches thick on the top if I could. So that's all for the mailbox for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, you can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. You can also go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the form or send an email to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. After the break, I'll be right back with today's main topic. Hey everyone, it's Bob. I want to talk to you about a way that you can support the show without any additional cost to you. I know a lot of you already shop online for your woodworking tools and other needs. Well, did you know that you can actually send a little love my way just by shopping online like you would normally do? The next time that you need to buy a woodworking tool, book, DVD, or just about anything else online, head on over to my website at brfinewoodworking.com first. In the footer of the website, or on the right side of the blog, you'll see several affiliate links for Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon.com. Just click on one of those links and you'll be taken from my website to the merchant that you want to shop with. Then just shop as you normally would. Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon will know that you were sent to them through my website. And in return, they'll send me a small percentage of your total purchase as a commission. It costs you nothing more than you were already planning to spend. But just by going through the links on my blog, you send a little love my way to help keep the show going. So don't forget... Go to brfinewoodworking.com and click the affiliate links in the website footer or the right side of the blog the next time you shop online. Thanks for your support, everyone. I really appreciate it. So today's main topic is power tools in the hand tools shop. You know, it's kind of ironic because um, you don't see me, you don't hear me talk about power tools and you don't see them on my blog or in my uh in any of my old videos. And for the most part, it's because, you know, for these, these days, I really do just about all my woodworking, my hobby woodworking with hand tools. And I've done so now for probably about 16 years. Uh, but you know, the fact of the matter is that I'm in the very small minority. Most people don't work this way or, or even want to work this way. Um, you know, there are aspects of handwork that they enjoy and other aspects that are just complete drudgery. So the question that arises is, you know, what power tools or machines make the most sense to budget for when your goal is to do most of your work by hand? So, you know, it's a question whose answer will certainly depend upon budget, but it's also going to depend on what tasks you enjoy doing by hand and what tasks are more work for you than fun. So what I've done is to take a look that, at the power tools that I do own to see if there's something that I would budget for if I were first starting out. Um, and also consider power tools and machines that I would like to have now because I think I would get a lot of use out of them if I did have them. So let me talk for a second and, and about why I have power tools, right? Because, um, you know, like I said, you haven't, you probably haven't seen me use any of them in, in my blog and you haven't seen me use any of them in my old YouTube videos. Um, and again, that's because in, in my hobby woodworking, I don't use them. Um, I do have power tools. But for the most part, they are only used for home improvement projects because, it, you know, for the most part, I really don't want to use them. I don't enjoy using them. I don't get the pleasure out of using the power tools that I do 
out of using my hand tools. So when I'm in the shop working on something that I want to work on, I'm using my hand tools because that's what I enjoy doing. When I have home improvement stuff to do and I'm working with plywood and OSB and whatever else I might be working with, um, you know, then I'm, I'm pulling out the power tools because, you know, it's just, it's something I just, I have to do it. I got to get it done. Um, maybe I don't really want to do it, but you know, let's just get it done and get it over with. So, um, you know, I do have some power tools and I don't have a lot of machines, you know, big matter of fact, I don't have any, um, big freestanding machines. It's all a few, you know, handheld portable power tools that you would expect a, uh, a contractor to have. Um, and I do have them again for, you know, my home improvement and remodeling type projects. So the ones that I do have that I could find some use in furniture making. So let, let, let's go through those and see, you know, is it something that I would recommend, you know, someone who doesn't want to go the full hand to hand tool route, um, you know, should you budget for these and are, would they be useful to you? So the first one that I have is a circular saw. Um, and I do use this from time to time. Again, I use it mostly for home improvement type projects, but if I'm going to build something, you know, like a utility cabinet or something like that out of plywood, I will break out the circular saw. Oh, you can certainly use hand tools to work plywood, but it's just not really a very enjoyable process. Um, you know, plywood, it's more, usually more glue than it is wood. Um, yeah, it dulls your tools and that's really not a concern, for me for the most part, because I know how to sharpen my saws and my chisels and my plane irons. So I don't really worry about the fact that the plywood dulls the tools faster. It's just, I don't really enjoy working with plywood with hand tools. You don't get, um, clean cuts. You, you tear out the veneer, you know, it's just the hand tools that I have just were not meant for working with plywood. So, you know, the circular saw for me comes in handy when I'm working with plywood or when I'm working with OSB or something where, you know, if I need to, to cut some wood around the, you know, the garden or something like that to, you know, make a compost bin or something, you know, then I'm using the circular saw. Um, is it something that I would recommend you to budget for? Um, this depends on what you're planning to work with. I could see a circular saw being used for ripping long rips in solid wood. I think it could be useful for that. If you don't have a table saw, I don't have a table saw and I do most of my ripping with my handsaw. If I have something that I absolutely just am dreading doing any ripping on and I don't want to do that ripping with a handsaw, these days I can take it over to the school and I can use the table saw or the bandsaw at the school. Um, you know, but and in my home shop, you know, I might consider using a circular saw. My circular saw is kind of a piece of junk, so um, I don't currently use it for that. But um, I do have some intentions of upgrading that circular saw, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but yeah, you know, a, a decent circular saw might be something that could be useful to you if you don't want to do your ripping by hand, um, or if you plan to work with a lot of plywood, um, circular saw could be good for that. So the next power tool that I do own is a jigsaw. Um, again, I use this when I'm doing home improvement type stuff. I use it for plywood um, in the Current, I'm, you know, we're currently building a log cabin right now, and for a lot of the wiring logs where we're going to be running wiring through, they actually get a piece of siding, log siding over them to make them look like a full log. Where instead, the inside of that log has actually been channeled out so we could run wiring through it and mount 
or electrical boxes. So I'll be using that jigsaw a lot to cut the holes for the electrical boxes. Again, not something that I want to go taking my bow saw up there and cutting all those holes for electrical boxes doing that type of construction work. Um, a jigsaw can also be useful if you don't own a bow saw, for example, like a turning saw. Um, I do own a turning saw, but you know, sometimes if you're working in some real thick stock, the blades that are available for the commercial turning saws just aren't aggressive enough. So, um, you know, a jigsaw could be useful to you if you're going to do some, some work with curves and, uh, and you don't own a bow saw. A jigsaw can also be used for ripping if you don't have the circular saw. So, um, it's not quite as fast as a circular saw. It may be a little faster than a handsaw, maybe not, but it would probably be a little bit less work than a handsaw, um, even though it would be about the same speed. So a jigsaw might be something you want to budget for. The third tool that I do still, power tool that I do still have is an orbital sander. Um, again, I don't, for the most part, I don't use this in my, in my woodworking, my hobby woodworking at all. Um, I hand plane all my surfaces on my solid wood. And uh, what that means is that for the most part, when I'm getting ready to finish, if I need to sand at all, it's only some light hand sanding with 220 grit paper. Um, I have the orbital sander, again, for those home improvement projects where I'm working with plywood or something like that, and I need to do some sanding on it. And you can't really plane plywood because the veneers are so thin and, um, you know, it just doesn't work. So I do have the orbital sander for that. I very, very rarely use it, but, um, but it is there and it is available if I need it, you know, for my home improvement projects. Um, what I, would I suggest you budget for it again, depends on what you're going to do. If you're going to hand plane most of your boards, if you're not planning to use plywood, if you're going to mostly use solid wood, um, I would say no, the orbital sander is probably not going to be all that useful to you if you're going to do a lot of hand planing. And if you're going to end up, um, you know, using mostly solid wood. But again, going back to the whole plywood thing, if you're going to be using some plywood in your work, you may want to consider the orbital sander. It might save you a little bit of, of time with some hand sanding. So the next power tool that I do still own is a miter saw. Um, and this one's kind of funny because I didn't own this for a while. Um, probably, oh, I don't know, five, four or five years or so ago, I actually gave the miter saw away. Uh, my brother is a, a contractor back in New Jersey. He owned his own um, home improvement remodeling business and his miter saw had broken. So I gave him mine because I, I wasn't using it. It was out in the garage um, and he, you know, he took it and was using it in his business for a bunch of years. Just recently, he had gotten a new compound sliding miter saw. So he gave me my old miter saw back um, and just like before, I really haven't, it hasn't seen much use in terms of woodworking at all. Where it has seen use recently, again, is in the home improvement remodeling type stuff because we've been building the log cabin and I have been using the miter saw to do a lot of the cuts up there at the cabin. Um, so I don't know that I would necessarily go out and buy one if I didn't have it. Um, I bought this saw almost 20 years ago now for a house, you know, we were, my wife and I were remodeling our very first house. Um, and that's when I bought the saw. Um, you know, these days I probably as little use as I see out of a miter saw, even with the home improvement stuff, I probably would not go out and buy one. Um, and it's certainly not 
a tool that I would uh, say I would budget for if I were just getting started out. Um, and I was mostly going to use hand tools because what you're going to do with the miter saw, for the most part, you can do with your hand saws just as quickly. Um, cross cuts, you know, are quick with a hand saw. It's not ripping and, a, you know, a miter saw won't do any ripping. So it's really just for cross cutting and mitering. And um, you can make those cuts pretty much as fast as you can make them with a miter saw using your hand saw. So I would say no, that is not a tool that I would budget for. So the next tool that I do still own, or actually that I began, that I owned again recently, um, is a router. Um, I had sold my routers, I don't know, 15 years ago, uh, when I started working with hand tools, and I pretty much stopped using the routers, and I haven't owned a router since. Uh, in fact, I just bought this router um, probably last last fall, I think. Um, and again, it was because of the work that I was doing in the log cabin. Um, I haven't needed it. I haven't used it for, you know, 15 years. I do all of my mortises and tenons by hand. I cut my dovetails by hand, dados, grooves, rabbits, um, all done by hand. I make my moldings by hand and that pretty much covers all the things that the router does. So, um, you know, so I have not used a router. I have not felt a need for the router. And if you're going to do your joinery by hand, if you're going to cut your dovetails, if you're going to make your mortises, your grooves, your dados, your rabbits, if you plan to do those with hand tools, you're probably not going to need a router. And I would say, don't bother. Um, but at the same time, a router is a pretty useful tool. If you don't have molding planes, if you don't have the planes to make the routers and the dado, the, the rabbits and the dados and the grooves, uh, because the router can do all of that. Um, Again, what I have against the routers, well, they're loud, they're messy, um, and you've got to have, you know, buy a new bit for everything. So, um, you know, it's not a tool that I would budget for, but again, that's because I like the handwork of making the joinery by hand and making the moldings by hand. That's, that's some of the favorite work that I do by hand is what the router does. So I would not budget for it. But again, it's something you might find useful if, you know, those are things that you wouldn't want to do by hand. Uh, cordless drill and or impact driver. I also have both of these. Um, and ironically, these were actually both given to me. Um, I haven't had a cordless drill or impact driver in years and years and years and years, and I just never felt the need for them. Um, brace and bit I've owned since I started woodworking by hand an egg beater drill and, and drill bits for that I've owned since I started working by hand. And, uh, and for the most part, they're just as fast as a cordless drill and impact driver. They're just as convenient. In fact, they're more convenient because their batteries don't die. Um, and I really never felt the need for a cordless drill and impact driver in my woodworking. And even in most of the home improvement stuff that I've done over the years, I've never felt the need for a cordless drill and impact driver. Um, I've always used corded drills if I really needed a drill with power, um, or I've used my bracing bit or my, my egg beater drill. Um, and I will, I will use the bracing bit or the egg beater drill for home improvement stuff too. I've done that plenty of times in the past because they're just as fast and just as simple and, and just as convenient. So, um, but you know, the cordless drill and impact driver that I do have now, they were given to me. Um, they were both used, but you know, they were the person that gave them to me got replacements and these were just extras that they had. So they, they gave them to me. So again, I've been using them for my home improvement stuff, but it's not something that I would say I would, you know, budget for. 
um, if you're going to do most of your work by hand because the, the drilling by hand is actually pretty fun with a, uh, with a brace and bit with an egg beater drill. Um, and brace and bit and egg beater drill are cheap. The bits for them are cheap. Um, the batteries never die. So yeah, I wouldn't bother budgeting for a cordless drill or an impact driver. All right, corded drills. Uh, I do actually have a pair of corded drills. Uh, one of them is just a regular corded drill and one of them is a hammer drill. And the, the hammer drill was actually a, a recent acquisition because a brace and bit or egg beater drill or the uh, the other regular corded drill that I have just doesn't do too well with drilling masonry. Um, and I needed to do a bunch of that recently. So I uh, had to break down and buy uh, an inexpensive hammer drill. So now I have two corded drills. Um, but before that, I just had one and I've had that same corded drill for, I don't know, 20 years. And, uh, you know, it, it did all the home improvement stuff that I needed for it to do. Um, would I budget for it for a hand tool, mostly hand tool shop? Again, probably not. Um, but I do like having it for the home improvement stuff. So, um, it's not bad to have for that, um, you know, but for my woodworking, again, I never use it. It just sits on the shelf until I need it for some kind of home improvement project, and then I pull it out. Um, next on my list is an air compressor. Uh, once again, this is a, a recent acquisition. This is starting to starting to see a theme here. Um, I've never used an air compressor in my woodworking, even when I was using machines. Uh, when I had my table saw and my bandsaw and my joiner and planer, I did not have an air compressor. Um, it is, again, this was a, a recent acquisition. Um, I did buy a portable air compressor again, because I am doing a lot of work building the new cabin. So I need to frame a lot of interior walls and I could have done it with, uh, with a hammer and nails very easily or deck screws. But, um, you know, the air compressor and the framing nailer just really make the job a lot faster and a lot easier for me. Um, so I did go out and, and get an air compressor and a framing nailer and, and, uh, Again, it's, you know, for, for the work around the house, um, and the home improvement and building the, uh, building the new cabin. But, um, in terms of, you know, a mostly hand tool shop, the, uh, the air compressor and the nail guns that I do have, I would not have budgeted for them for woodworking. Um, you know, I have several hammers and I use mostly cut nails when I use nails in my woodworking and, uh, the guns can't handle those. So, um, you know, again, that's mostly home improvement stuff that I'm using those nail guns and the air compressor for. And then the last power tool that I do still have is a benchtop drill press. Um, and this is one that I, I struggle with because every time I think, uh, I should just go and sell this, something comes up and I end up using the drill press. Um, these days I mostly use it when I need to drill metal or when I need to, um, clean up an old tool. Uh, I use the drill press a lot with small wire, small, um, soft wire wheels uh, for cleaning up metal tools, cleaning rust off tools. So I keep it around for that because it, it wasn't an expensive drill press. It's a bench top model. I just leave it in the corner and pull it out when I need it. Um, and I know I wouldn't get much if I sold it anyway. So, um, you know, I do keep it around, but you know, again, it's one of those things where, you can drill pretty darn accurately with a bracing bit or with an egg beater drill. Um, I don't drill my mortises before I make them. So I don't need the, the drill press for that because I just chop my mortises with a mortise chisel. So 
it's one of those tools that I, I kind of struggle with. Um, would I recommend that you budget for one if you're just, you know, doing a mostly hand tool shop? I would have to say no, again, because, you know, brace and bits fairly cheap. Egg beater drills are really cheap. Um, and you can learn to drill very accurately with those tools. So um, I don't think that the drill press is, is necessary at all. So those are the tools that I have. Um, let's talk about tools or machines that power tools or machines that uh, I think maybe I would find useful now. So the first one is a joiner planer. Um, and I'm, I'm specifically calling out a combo machine here. Um, I do right now all of my rough stock prep with my hand planes. Um, and I, for the most part, will continue to do that. Um, and I, it, you know, even if I had a joiner planer, if I was building a reproduction of a period piece, like I sometimes do, I would continue to use my hand planes for that. Because when I build a reproduction, I don't just reproduce the piece. I like to reproduce the process as well, because I feel that a lot of the character and the look of the reproduction piece comes from the process and is a direct result of the process and the tools that are used to, to build it. So um, if I'm building a reproduction, even if I had a joiner planer, I wouldn't use it. But, you know, there are some projects that come to mind, like when I built my entertainment center. Um, you know, if I've got 100, 120, 150 board feet of lumber to process, and it's not for a reproduction where I'm, I'm you know, making sure to do all that stock prep by hand, that's a lot of lumber to have to surface by hand with a, with a hand planes. Um, and you know, I'm not getting any younger and I don't need to prove anything to anybody these days. You know, I can do the work. I know I can do the work with hand tools. Um, and a joiner planer would just be something that would, uh, I think would fit in well in my shop for the type of work that I do where, you know, the majority of my work is done with hand tools. I do all my finished planing with hand tool, with hand planes. Um, these days I do have access to a joiner and a planer at the school, um, they do have a six inch joiner and a 15 inch helical head planer. Um, if I was going to buy one for myself, I think I would go with a 12 inch joiner planer combo machine. Cause I, I, to me having a six inch joiner with a 15 inch planer doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, you know, most boards that I use for my work are wider than six inches. So a six inch joiner doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me. Um, but I think the 12 inch planer, the, the 12 inch joiner planer combo would be, uh, would be something good. Now they're not cheap. You know, we're talking about a machine that's, you know, in the neighborhood of $3,000. Um, so it's not something that I would necessarily budget for if you're just getting started, but it is something that I would say to keep in mind for the future, because even if you want to do the majority of work by hand, um, sooner or later, planing all of your rough sawn lumber with hand planes is probably going to get old for you. Um, I still enjoy doing it again. And when I'm making period reproductions, I absolutely still plane all that lumber by hand. But, um, you know, there are just days where it does become somewhat drudgery. And uh, I really do wish I had that joiner planer to just get all that stock prep done so I could move on to the joinery and start, you know, putting pieces together. So the second machine that I would consider would be a bandsaw. Um, and this one I go back and forth with, you know, sometimes I think, well, it would be really nice to have a, a bandsaw and other times, you know, I really don't miss it. Um, 
it would be nice for long rips, but again, that's something that could be done with a circular saw. So I don't think, you know, I'd really necessarily budget for, you know, a $1,200 bandsaw when a $100 circular saw could do the job just as well, because even after the bandsaw, you're going to clean up that rip cut with your hand plane. So, um, you know, for rip cuts, eh, for scrolling and, and curve cuts, again, you, you know, you can do that with a bow saw. You can do that with a jigsaw pretty much just as well as you can do it with a bandsaw. And again, you're going to be cleaning that cut up whether you use a jigsaw or a bandsaw. So I wouldn't budget for the bandsaw for those things. Where the bandsaw really does come in handy is for resawing. Uh, now I have a, a big four foot frame saw that I use for resawing. Um, but that's a lot of work um, and it takes a lot of skill to do. It's not sawing with the, those big four foot long frame saws is not something that you just pick up the saw um, and it follows the line. They do take quite a bit of skill and quite a bit of practice to get decent with those and to get good results with them. Um, they're not the easiest saws in the world to use. So, you know, I try to avoid resawing if I can, because they're just one of those things that makes life, uh, you know, it's kind of tough with the, to resaw by hand. So I would really think that a bandsaw could be useful for those times when I did need to do some resawing. But again, at, you know, the price that bandsaws go for, it's probably not something I would budget for up front. It's something I might want to plan for in the future. So the next tool that I would say would be kind of useful um, would be a really good circular saw or a track saw. Um, and this is I alluded to this earlier when I was talking about the circular saw. So I do currently have a circular saw, but my circular saw is kind of a piece of junk. The arbor is worn out, the blade wobbles, um, it's just not in good shape. And it's not something that I would use if I needed to make any kind of precision cut. So I do actually have plans to replace it and I actually will be getting a, a track saw because um, I think it's going to be very useful for what I'm going to be doing up in the cabin. Um, we're going to be building our own kitchen and bathroom cabinets and they will all be plywood. And, uh, you know, I know that you could, I could probably make a decent circular saw work, but the track saw just seems to make things so much easier and so much simpler and more straightforward that um, for the, the work that I'm going to be doing, I think it just makes more sense. Um, so I actually will be getting a track saw in order to do that work. But again, this is one of those things where, um, you know, if I were not going to be working with all this plywood, I probably, you know, I definitely wouldn't get it. I would just end up with a, you know, a better circular saw. I would replace my circular saw with a regular circular saw. But because of all the precision cuts that I'm going to need to make um, with these kitchen cabinets, um, I'm going to bite the bullet and I'm going to go ahead and, and upgrade with the track saw. Um, and again, you know, it's one of those things where I think if you're just starting out, it's probably not a tool that you would want to budget for up front. But in the long run, you know, if you're going to work with a lot of plywood, it's a good option. Um, and it can be used to make rip cuts in hardwood and in, in regular boards and not just plywood. Rather than, you know, if you don't want to make all those rip cuts with your hand saws, you can certainly use a circular saw or a track saw to do that. So it's not a, a bad option. 
um, for, you know, what is certainly significantly less than a table saw and probably a little bit more versatile than a table saw as well, because you can actually bring it to the work instead of having to bring the, the wood to the saw. So, um, you know, a really good circular saw, I think, you know, could be a, a good option. Um, and it is something that I'm going to be looking into myself in the near future. And finally, the last tool that I do have on the list is a lathe. Um, you know, I built a a version of Roy Underhill's spring pole lathe years ago, um, and it worked pretty good. It wasn't quite heavy enough for my taste and tended to walk around a little bit. And um, my knees didn't like the uh, the pole lathe too much. And I think if I built another lathe myself, it would either be a really heavy treadle lathe or a... Uh, a heavy version of a pole lathe, more like what uh, Rubeau pictures in his book, uh, built out of oak or something like that, that would be a lot heavier and a lot sturdier. But, um, you know, a, a powered lathe, I think, is probably something that would be good to budget for if you're just getting started um, and you eventually want to do some turning. Sure, you can build a lathe yourself and there's nothing wrong with doing it. I, like I said, I've done it myself. Um, but it's one of those tools where there's really no other way to you know, to, to create round things and spindles than on some kind of a lathe. And whether you build it yourself or whether you buy it one way or another, you're going to need a lathe if you're going to want to do that work. So it is one of the, the power tools that I would like to have in my own shop. Um, so it is one that I would say, go ahead and consider um, to put in your budget if you eventually want to do any type of spindle work or round work of any kind. So that's going to do it for this week's show. I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because once again, without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions, you can leave me a voicemail at 276-601-3123. You can also use the contact form or email address on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt003. In the show notes, you'll find any links that I referred to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. You can also sign up for my newsletter to receive subscriber-only content, updates, and special offers delivered to your email inbox every Friday. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you have multiple options for doing so. You can become a supporter on Patreon, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can shop with one of our affiliates. You'll find links for all these options in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody. <laughs>